This is an ABC podcast. Hello, it's Cass McAloon with you. It's great to have your company as we head out to explore a big country. This week, we'll meet the growers who are getting their pomegranates directly to customers. They've opened a cafe on their farm where they're serving up the fruit's seeds and juice in a range of dishes. We'll find out why a family of beef farmers has added a side business growing fancy edible fungi. And we'll hear how keeping up a busy life on the family cattle station is helping 79-year-old Olive live life to the fullest with a dementia diagnosis. She couldn't imagine living anywhere else. I just loved the country life. I just liked to see the animals, the plants, the trees and I've never lived anywhere else but on the land. So as long as I've got um, horses and cattle and animals around me, I'll be happy. Olive's secrets to a happy life that's coming up. First today, we're heading to the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales. When floods struck the region in February, among the many items destroyed were hundreds of musical instruments. Now the region's musicians have been gifted replacements and a local composer and multi-instrumentalist, Tilly Jones, has written an orchestral piece that captures the heartbreak, heroism and hope of the disaster in a moving soundscape. She plans to bring together local musicians for a performance. Our reporter Leah White compiled this story that starts with Anita Bellman of the Northern Rivers Conservatorium. We probably lost in total, you know, well over 150 instruments. Clarinets, cellos, guitars, trumpets, saxophones. Any instrument you can think of, we lost. I'm Tilly Jones and I'm a composer and multi-instrumentalist. The start of a piece is a bit of a calm before the storm. That progresses into the real bulk of the piece with the timpani doing a low rumble, got a xylophone doing a dissonant trill to emulate the sirens and the alarms and I guess the real fear that was going on at the time. It's a really big challenge to translate something of that magnitude into music. I kind of use the piece as half a bit of a retelling, in a way, of the thoughts. And then the other half, a bit of a tribute to everyone involved. So I used the different instruments of the orchestra, which is very large, to create a bit of a landscape to retell that story. Based on the predictions that were coming out at the time, we felt that moving everything to the first floor, we'd done a good job of preparing for what was to come. I'm Anita Bellman, I'm the Executive Director of the Northern Rivers Conservatorium in Lismore. 
So I realised that things wouldn't be okay when I woke up on Monday morning. We had come up halfway up the windows on the first floor of the building. Where, where I'm sitting at the moment is the admin offices and it, it just, I mean, it looked like a giant had picked the building up and just given it a bit of a shake and things were just, you know, so topsy-turvy and, you know, everything was upended. I don't think I'll fully ever be able to process it. I was helping there on the first day after the flood where we threw out hundreds and hundreds of instruments, including some of my own. So kind of having that end goal in mind of bringing everyone together with the new instruments and I guess bringing music back to the community kind of helped me in dealing with it. After the flood, I was so disappointed when I realised that my mate and guitar was covered in mud and water and broken. My name's uh, Stella Ratmond and I'm a recipient of um, a guitar through the ReSound program. The three things was my cat and my dog and my guitar that I was hoping to rescue from the flood. So I've got the cat and the dog and but not the guitar. I felt guilty that I hadn't rescued it. But I didn't realise the flood would be so huge and it wasn't supposed to come into the house. So there was a black one, wasn't there, as well? ReSound is a music instrument drive. What we do is we take donated instruments and we redistribute them to people who have lost instruments in natural disasters. Rachel Hocking, I'm the manager and founder of ReSound. Oh, thank you. Oh, that's okay. And hug. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, take care. It's a big deal for people who have lost a lot. Often replacing a musical instrument is one of the last things on the list to be replaced because the immediate needs need to be met. There you go. Thank you so much. Oh, that's okay. But for musicians who earn income from it or who um, play it every day, it's a big loss. It, it's, it's something normal that they were doing that they've lost. I can remember thinking in the first week about the loss, the loss not just of our musical instruments, but how much loss there would have been right across the community. So ReSound has, I think that they're up to, you know, over 200 instruments throughout the community and the conservatorium has received donations of well over 200 instruments as well. To receive the guitar from ReSound, I was just stunned. I thought, wow, this is beautiful, it's a lovely guitar. And just to have this gift was just fabulous. Having the music there and the guitar, it's been like light coming on, you know, like a Christmas lights or something. I turn them on, get the guitar out, the lights come on. Then when I'm finished, then the lights go off. It really does mean so much to me to have my friends, my family and my colleagues at the conservatorium play it and also even people I don't know through ReSound um, to be playing this piece. I'm really excited to hear it and see what comes from it. 
for me, I think some of the greatest pieces of music have come out of really traumatic and tragic events. So I think music really has the power to help people process trauma and go through a healing process. I'm involved in all, everything that I love doing. I still go over to the cattle yards when they're doing work. I can open shut gates. I can run for something if they want, want something. If somebody gets hurt, I go and get the first aid if we haven't got on board. Although she just turned 79, Olive Ether still lives a busy life on her family property near Baralaba in central Queensland about an hour and a half west of Rockhampton. I'm still involved in, in work. Olive also lives with dementia. Her daughter Lynn first noticed symptoms about six years ago. We were playing a card game once and then Mum was like, I, I don't know how to play this game. I don't know how to play. And I was like, Mum, you're a champion at cards. And so just a change in ability to do something for one moment and then the next day it was... It was fine again. Mum was a, a, a bit emotional at times and she was always, you know, the steady rock. And then she just felt there were some highs and lows and there were some tears sometimes. And I was like having a double take. So, yeah, and maybe a little bit of paranoia. Hi, I'm Michelle Gately. I'm here chatting with Olive and Lynn on the family farm, which is not only a working cattle property, but also a farm stay operation hosting tourists for rural experiences. The pair are recounting the tense time the family experienced before Olive received her dementia diagnosis. It was a very unsettling, uneasy time. That's definitely the case, and you don't want to go accusing anybody, and you don't want to... When you start the conversation, then it brings up more emotion. You're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. Well, I, I was a bit disappointed in different times because she used to say to me, oh, you haven't done that, or you, you, don't, you, know, you should be doing this or something, and I didn't know that I wasn't, wasn't doing the right thing or saying the right thing or doing the right thing. Yeah, it was... Uh, Some confusion. Yeah, yeah. But I was lucky. I was diagnosed early enough, and I didn't have the trauma that a lot of other people would have went through. You're a good stick mum. And it was tough for a while there, wasn't it? Yeah. The family did eventually talk to Olive, but Lynn says by the time they did see a doctor and waited for a specialist appointment, it was two years on from those first symptoms. Luckily though, it was early enough for medication to effectively stabilise most of Olive's symptoms, which means she's been able to live a relatively normal life on the farm, something she believes is only helping her dementia. Well, the point is actually I can do a lot of help for them and I enjoy doing it. And that helps me with the dementia because I don't sit. If I, if I retired, <clears throat> I would sit in, in the house and do nothing. Where I'm still very busy with my life. Olive's daily routine has been mostly unchanged since diagnosis. Every day starts with a three kilometre walk down the property's dirt road drive and onto the highway. She wears a safety vest but rarely sees a passing car this far out of town. After breakfast, there's work to do on the farm stay. Although the family is closed for holiday bookings, they still host plenty of workers in the region. There's all the linen to do. I love doing the linen. I love ironing the pillowcases, doing the washing, uh, making beds. The only thing I don't like doing is um, 
cleaning um, showers because they're too far down to the floor. As the farm stay expanded over the years, the family made accessible upgrades that will also make it possible for Olive to stay at home even if her mobility decreases. They may live in the bush, but Lynn says she's been blown away by the amount of care and support services available. And those carers are on board with Olive's plan to raise money for Dementia Australia through a public walk in Barala Bar this month. So she has access to a podiatrist. So we say mum's in training and he helped to get the right shoes. Um, one of the aged care support workers does massage. So we get mum to have a massage because she's in training and she's an athlete. There's a nurse that comes and takes her blood pressure. So, yeah, those services are out there and those services are also helping make me feel supported. Both mother and daughter believe there's no better place for Olive to be than at home. Well, I, I feel that at this stage I don't have dementia because I can do whatever I want to do. I'm still capable of doing all the things that I want to do. So I feel if I can keep going the way I am, the life will be the no different. What is it you love about being out here? Why do you never want to leave? Well, the point is actually I've never lived in a, in, in a town and I just love the country life. I just like to see the animals, the plants, the trees and um, it's freedom. You can do whatever you sort of want to do. I just love the land. I've, I've never lived anywhere else but on the land. So as long as I've got um, horses and cattle and animals around me, I'll be happy. Olive Ether, along with her daughter Lynn, she spoke to reporter Michelle Gately about how they've navigated Olive's dementia diagnosis and how she's benefiting from being at home on the family cattle station. Before that, Leah White brought us that beautiful piece about an orchestral composition written in response to the devastating floods in the Lismore region of northern New South Wales. And you can see more on both those stories if you head on to the RN homepage. Just look for A Big Country. I'm Kath McAloon with you on ABCRN, still to come. The farm cafe with a view of rows and rows of pomegranate trees. And from meat to mushrooms, we'll meet the cattle farmers who are adding fungi to the locally grown produce they're taking to market. So what happens is the bags come in here and... They start growing, they look like this. Inside this converted shipping container, Susie Usher is growing fancy edible mushrooms. This is shimiji, blue shimiji. Down here is Queensland white. And then around the corner, yellow shimiji, lion's mane. This will get little hairs that go down. Um, so it's not quite ready for me to pick yet. They really are beautiful, aren't they? <laughs> These are very fancy mushrooms. Gourmet. Yeah, gourmet. That's right. <laughs> Hello, I'm Jennifer Nichols. I'm standing with Susie in this dark room on the family property at Kinkin in the Noosa hinterland on Queensland's Sunshine Coast. Outside, the lush green hills here are home to a small herd of beef cattle. The colourful mushrooms serve as a complimentary side business to Susie and her husband Bryant's beef enterprise. And while they look great now, just ahead of picking, Susie says when they first start growing, they're not quite so impressive. When they first start, they look a little bit like mould. And then 
so it starts like that. The next day it'll look like that. They grow really, really quickly. In five days, see, I've already picked, you'll get something like that. It's terrific, isn't it? Yeah. And so we're in this container. It's air-conditioned. What temperature have you got it at? 24 to 25 degrees, approximately. Yep. Technical <laughs> stuff I don't get too bogged down with. <laughs> Just outside, Brian Usher has been exercising his farming ingenuity. It's an old milk fat. <laughs> old milk fat converted to being a steamer or a steriliser for our um, mushroom substrate. So we just use a normal um, urn that you might get at the CWA and <laughs> turn it up full bore so it's just boiling the whole time and putting steam into the vat. And so we've got our substrate, which is now wood, so we, we do a mix with wood and uh, soy hull and uh, then we just bag it, put it in there, which effectively cleans out any other bugs and fungi and stuff from there. If we're talking about substrate and you've never heard of it before, it's what the mushrooms grow in. That's correct, yes. And why did you want to get into mushrooms, Susie uh, Usher? Initially, my desire was to do medicinal mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, but there's so much red tape with it currently. So we thought, righto, we'll set it up, we'll grow eating mushrooms. We are now growing lion's mane and that is a medicinal mushroom. So I'm pretty excited about that. And then because we sell beef, I really wanted to find an alternative for those people that don't eat beef. So mushrooms, I don't know, mushrooms is, I just fascinate me. Yeah, they're exciting <laughs> mushrooms. They're, they're delicious they too. They're delicious. They're really yummy. And this goes back onto the paddock. We make a compost and goes back onto the paddock. So everything's cyclic. So that's really important to us. Would you like to describe this room for people who are listening? Uh, it's a 20-foot container. We've got shelves and we have shelves of different degrees of where the process is for the mushroom. These ones, they're ready to go out. Those bags are ready because they've got all the white all the way through them. So those bags could go into the next room ready for fruiting. These ones, these are got a little bit of white, a little bit of wood, so they're not ready. Wow, you must have had a very steep learning curve with this because there is a lot to it. It's not necessarily yeah. easy. No, it's an interesting industry. Because we're regenerative farmers, we're used to helping each other in the beef industry. <laughs> and that doesn't happen much in the mushroom industry. Everybody wants to hide their secrets. We have a, our other business partner, Alex, our son. He's probably the mycologist behind a lot of the technology and how much water to add and what to add to the wood bag. So he does all that research. He, behind you, you'll see a lab in there and that's where he does all his mycology. We're in the lab. So, in the lab. so the lab has a filtered flow form so that the air coming out of that little unit there is, is clean of any bugs and stuff. So he can do the mycology work in front of that. You'll see some petri dishes there. He's actually culturing the spore. So we've got our own grain spore as we go forward. Because that's probably our biggest input is the grain spore at the moment to buy it in and it comes from Melbourne, of all places, so it's got to come a long way. Thank you. Their son and fellow fungi fancier is busy cooking up innovative ideas. I left the laboratory and caught up with Alex Thompson-Welsh at Eastwell Farm's stall at the Noosa Farmers Market. So in the past couple of weeks, we've had uh, the grow kits added to our range. We've got the pink, white, yellow, blue shimiji and the lion's mane. And then we've also got some dried lion's mane now. 
The grow kits are going like hotcakes. People love them because it's just so easy, you know. Everything's done for you in the box. You just take it home and rip open the window and voila, you're away. At this unique cafe in Western Australia's great southern region, you can eat the red crunchy seeds of pomegranate fruit in a range of dishes while gazing upon rows and rows of pomegranate trees. I'd have to say that we're the first pomegranate farm in Australia to have a cafe on the farm where we grow the trees. And uh, it's a bit hard to be a first these days, so it's lovely to be able to provide that. That's Deb Walker, who along with partner Robert Sutton are the co-owners of Pomegranate Hill Cafe on a farm about 40 kilometres north of Albany in southern WA. They've been growing pomegranates here since 2017 and have opened a cafe this year as a way of promoting their fruit directly to customers. It was our dream probably three years ago to actually have a what we called a pomegranate shack on the property so we didn't have to go into the markets and if people are out this way they can actually call in and um, sample the fruit and uh, this was an extension to see what you could do with the fruit and actually try the, the pomegranate in cooking and, and the juicing and, and that sort of product. Hello, I'm Sophie Johnson. I'm visiting Deb and Robert here on the farm where their cafe is doing roaring trade since it opened just a few weeks ago. Robert says the ultimate goal is to sell all their fruit directly through the farm. Being a townie all my life, I never thought I'd be in this situation, but um, I'll, I'd be uh, quite happy if I didn't go to town again. So if we can sell our product on the farm, um, it just makes life so much easier and more fulfilling. Plus we also wanted to cut out the, the middleman because we the whole idea of us p growing pomegranates was to provide the fresh original fruit at a reasonable cost because of its uh, high antioxidants and its um, benefits, health benefits, that we wanted people to be able to access them. And pomegranates, it's a bit of a niche market. Can you tell me a little bit about how that's been for you? It's about educating the people. Generally, they think the pomegranates, you put them on your salads, but there's so much more you can do. You know, we're looking at actually fresh freezing or having an antioxidant-friendly way of pasteurising so we can actually sell the juice. And how important is it to you that more people get a bit more versatile with their pomegranate consumption? Well, I think it's very important because at, at this, when, when you go to Central Asia, Turkey and Jordan and these places, that it, that's, that's used every day in their food. And there is a backstory to why we're doing it. Would you mind sharing that backstory? Yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose it's I'm responsible. <laughs> yeah, it's my fault. I'm responsible. Um, in 2013, I had a, a breast cancer diagnosis of HER2 positive, which uh, included having chemotherapy, radiation, lumpectomy, and while I was doing all of that, my niece came over and she visited us and she said, you, uh, you must get these in your diet, Deb. And I didn't know anything, neither of us knew anything about pomegranates at that stage. So while I was going through my treatment, I think it gave Robbie some sense of comfort and his way of caring for me was to research the qualities and the, the antioxidants. And the more he researched, the more it, it got his curiosity. So we planted a few testers and they grew. And then he said, shall we, uh, shall we get a couple of hundred? <laughs> and now we're up to nearly 5,000 
definitely after my treatment and I was feeling healthier, I started to take the pomegranate juice and we just regularly take it now and to be able to help others in that same situation to access the purest form of pomegranate juice so that you're getting all those antioxidants. The research that's been done on it and we only refer to scientifically proven research because we've all we're all over the superfood trends and things like that. So and there's some great papers written out there that's been scientifically proven and tested about the healing qualities of pomegranates. So yeah, I suppose it is I said I took a hit for the team. <laughs> But here we are eight years later and I'm in remission and thoroughly uh, fills my heart to see what Robbie and I have created and it's been an, a really uh, fun, tremultuous but now fulfilling journey. So this is a real dream come true for you guys? Yeah, it's been, and it's not really to you repeat it to someone else, like hearing our own words that we can sit here now and look at it and gosh, yeah, yeah. Co-owners of Pomegranate Hill, Deb Walker and Robert Sutton, they were speaking to reporter Sophie Johnson about their new cafe in southern Western Australia. For more on that and all the stories that you've heard on today's program, just head online to the RN homepage, abc.net.au slash RN, and look for A Big Country. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.